Howdy, everybody. The following is a recorded discussion with Chaplain Raymond, our Attorney General for the Republic State of Texas. We've been covering a topic uh, or a book by Charles A. Wiseman called The Authority of Law. Today we are in Chapter 6, Procedure, Jurisdiction, and Arguments, which also covered criminal jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction. Hope you enjoy. Okay, today is um, March 2nd, 2011, continuing our Authority of Law course. I'm starting this today with a follow-up to yesterday's um, session. What is on the screen is the first page of the Internal Revenue Code of, nine, of 2006, for which I have a volume. And, and it shows what they're doing inside the code to master an illusion. Okay? It says, this is an act to revise the Internal Revenue Laws of the United States. And then they specifically state, be it enacted that the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that. And the first word after that is citation. Well, what is a citation? Under an illegal dictionary that's on the Internet, it is either, you know, the little document you get when you're caught speeding, or OSHA issues for safety hazards. Then there's another meaning, which is the citing of a pre case or recognized legal authority as support for an argument. Now, does you catch that? Citation is pointing to a recognized authority as support for an argument. Therefore, when they say, be it enacted, that we present the following argument. Okay? Now, what are the famous four words, uh, Mr. Chastang? Do you remember? When you were confronted I, I with... Just, I just got on, Chaplain. I've been trying to dial for the last ten minutes. All right. I was asking, what is the famous four words? I do not consent. All right. In other words, they're saying that this, they don't mention it as law. They're referencing it as an argument. Okay? The being enacted that if we present you the following argument. This is almost the same as a resolution. Anyway, it comes on down and says, it shall be published as volume 68A of the United States Statutes at Lard. And can I switch to you, Chuck, for a minute? That's fine. You have the paragraph? Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. The IRS says that the IRC Book 68A imposes an tax. It's not made or uh, enacted. 
Yet the IRC Book 68A is not statute law, and there is no 26 U.S. code as the IRS and USDJ print all over the place in documents. As no public law ever established the IRC Book 68A as statute law, or established it as 26 U.S.C. Only sections in the Book 68A titled Internal Revenue Code, which are directly supported by Code of Federal Regulations, which is CFR, or United States Code Statute Law, can be considered relevant as implementing regulations. Most sections of IRC Book 68A are administrative interpretations and are rubbish. We forgot to get that one out of there, Chuck. <laughs> As there is no statute law basis for them. It is noteworthy that all the IRC sections that the IRS says give, give them authority or impose a tax have no basis in statute laws. No statute law gives the Internal Revenue Service any authority to administer the U.S. federal tax system, make interpretations of the statute law, or collect any information, do any investigations, issue fines, or collect anything from any person. You want to give it back to me, John? Sure. Okay. There you go. All right. Now... What I'm saying is, if you first pick this book up and read that first piece there, you'd swear that this was law. How many people do you think are are really have what it takes to discern that when they read this? Not many at all. I did. When it was on the screen, I got very suspicious of that paragraph one, right after the citation. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't trust it. Well, you'll notice if I come down here, it'll say cross-reference. <laughs> you know, okay, why are they going to all this trouble? And then they use, they use a strange technique. They have a after-the-fact statement as a section head. Enactment of Internal Revenue Title into Law. Okay, that's just a section head. That's not the law. When you proceed to read it, it says the Internal Revenue Title referred to in section, subsection A1, which is up here, is as follows. So what are they saying is law? The section heads and the headings? Or is it just not a part of the law at all, these section heads, these section headings. Anyway, that gives you some idea of the state of the art out there with regard to these things. Okay? Now, I'm going to close this screen to get rid of it. Now, we're back down to our course. Um, let's look at today's maximum of law. He who is silent does not indeed confess, but yet it is true that he does not deny. 
So this is the underlying logic or reasoning for acquiescence. If you remain silent, well, yeah, of course, you did not admit that you accept it, but because you did not deny it, they're going to say that the denying takes precedence. You did not deny. So acquiescence means you accept. They could have just as easily uh, said silence means deny, but it wouldn't have achieved the end result. Okay? Let's uh, get into our course now. Today may run, may run a little long. I'm not sure. But let's skip right through it, and uh, we will not um, no questions till we get done. Now that this material of law has been presented, we need next to know how to properly use it in court or against government encroachment. Since this information can have a devastating effect on the very foundation of the current legal system, <coughs> Excuse me. I must take a drink. Just arguing that the laws used against the person are not valid will not be very effectual. Let me read the whole thing again. Since this information can have a devastation on the very foundation of the current legal system, just arguing that the laws used against a person are not valid will not be very effectual. Even though there is no argument that can be raised against this materials, judges will be motivated to set it aside or rule against it because their love of money is greater than their love of law and justice. This material, however, can be used in different ways which will force bureaucrats and judges to accept it or commit obvious acts of usurpation and corruption. The material can be used or presented by way of affidavit, abatement, habeas corpus, memorandum, and motion to dismiss or demur. In each case, the main issues are that no valid law, fraud, or lack of subject matter jurisdiction. It is important to understand how this material directly affects the jurisdiction of the court. There have been, of course, many wrong and erroneous arguments upon the subject of jurisdiction. Most people readily see the results of a corrupt and spiritually devout society, economy, and government and want nothing to do with it. So they make up some jurisdictional argument to get out of the system. While the general concept seems right, the arguments about jurisdiction have not been legally sound. So we need to accurately understand the matter of jurisdiction in the criminal system. Criminal ju jurisdiction. 
Jurisdiction in terms of the authority of a court is in two main types, as Judge Cooley states. The proceedings in any court are void if it wants jurisdiction in the case of the case in which it has assumed to act. Jurisdiction is first of the subject matter and second of the persons whose rights are to be passed upon. Both types of jurisdiction are required in criminal matters. To try a person for the commission of a crime, the trial court must have jurisdiction of both the subject matter and the person of the defendant. Personal jurisdiction, or the authority to judge a person, is primarily one of venue or procedure. Generally, if one is standing in a court, it has some degree of jurisdiction over that per person. Thus, if one is named in a suit but is absent from the court by being either in prison or by escape, there is a want of jurisdiction over the person and the court cannot proceed with the trial. In some cases, certain irregularities in procedural matters, such as not having a complaint or an affidavit signed, or failure to apprise the defendant of the nature and cause of the accusation can affect personal jurisdiction. But such irregularities in obtaining personal jurisdiction may be waived. But such irregularities in obtaining personal jurisdiction may be waived. Thus, Jurisdiction of the person may be conferred by consent and by pleading to the merits of the case. Also, any lack of jurisdiction over the person is waived by his appearance through counsel. It is also true that any irregularities in procedural matters which might inhibit personal jurisdiction can be corrected and the case retried. The jurisdictional arguments most patriots have been raising in recent times deal with personal jurisdiction. That is, they claim the court has no jurisdiction to try them personally. But one can claim a lack of personal jurisdictions without any legal grounds and then expect the court to dismiss the matter. The, let me read that again. But one cannot simply claim a lack of personal jurisdiction without any legal grounds and then expect the court to dismiss the matter. In summary, it is rare to have an issue regarding personal jurisdiction that will completely stop proceedings or end the action against the person. One of the few exceptions is if the person is a foreign ambassador or dignitary with diplomatic immunity in which a treaty exists with this country. Some have asserted that they are a non-resident or a non-resident alien and thus do not come under the jurisdiction of the court or laws of Congress or the state. But it matters not where one lives 
or if he is a citizen or alien, for all in the land are subject to the laws of the nation. Aliens cannot come to this country and violate laws with impunity and then claim our courts are powerless to try and punish them for their acts. The courts do have jurisdiction over aliens. If you go to Mexico and break their laws and claim that you're a non-resident alien or American citizen, it isn't going to hold any water. If that is your only defense, you will end up in a Mexican prison. Jurisdictional arguments to be of any merit, even in the present day de facto courts, have to be based upon some concept of law that would have had merit 150 years ago. All the popular jurisdictional arguments used today fail this test. But by divine providence, a flaw has been placed within the current corrupt legal system, one which causes it to exist and operate without any actual jurisdiction to which citizens are subject. This flaw relates to subject matter jurisdiction, not personal jurisdiction. The system that has grown up around us has a defect which causes a lack of subject matter jurisdiction in the courts, which means that no criminal case can be lawfully tried. But it is important to know that one know of this defect so it can be asserted against officials or, or in court. If it is not, then it is as though the defect does not exist. Let me read that again. But it is important that one know of this defect so it can be asserted against officials or in court. For if it is not, then it is as though this defect does not exist. The key then lies in understanding subject matter jurisdiction. Now, under subject matter jurisdiction, jurisdiction of the subject matter involves the actual thing involved in the controversy. In civil matters, it is usually some property or money in dispute, or it might be the tort or wrong one committed against another, or it might be a contract, marriage, bankruptcy, lien, will that is in dispute. If the property or thing in dispute never existed, there would be no subject matter jurisdiction. In criminal proceedings, the thing that forms the subject matter is the crime or public offense that is alleged, allegedly committed. The subject matter of a criminal offense is the crime itself. Subject matter in its broadest sense means the cause, the object, the thing in dispute. Most cases in which there would be a want of subject matter jurisdiction are self-evident. If a subject matter or crime is outside the territorial jurisdiction of the court, the court would not have jurisdiction over the thing or crime involved. Also, certain types of court are given the authority, either by constitutional grant or statute, to hear certain types of cases. A federal tax court 
has subject matter jurisdiction over federal tax matters, not over state tax matters or over bankruptcy cases. A probate court has jurisdiction over a will, but has no subject matter jurisdiction over the crime of burglary. A justice of the peace who is given authority to hear misdemeanor cases has no subject matter jurisdiction to hear any felony cases. It thus is said in a general sense that subject matter jurisdiction refers to the power of the court to hear and decide a case or a particular class of cases. This is because jurisdiction of a court is derived from law, constitution, or statute and cannot be conferred by consent. Want me to read that again? Yeah. It is. It thus is said in a general sense that subject matter jurisdiction refers to the power of the court to hear and decide a case or a particular class of cases. This is because jurisdiction of a court is derived from law, either constitution or statute, and cannot be conferred on that court by consent. The law creates courts and defines their powers. Consent cannot authorize a judge to do what the law has not given him the power to do. Because subject matter jurisdiction is a matter of law and authority of the court to hear a matter, the accused cannot waive the lack of it or even give his consent to it if it does not exist. Thus, the issue of subject matter jurisdiction can be raised at any time during the case, even after a plea has been entered. Jurisdiction of the subject matter is derived from the law. It can neither be waived nor conferred by consent of the accused. Objection to the court over the subject matter may be urged at any stage of the proceedings and the right to make such an objection is never waived. However, jurisdiction of the person of the defendant may be acquired by consent of the accused or by a waiver of objections. It is everywhere held that jurisdiction over subject matter or cause of action cannot be conferred upon a court by consent or waiver but may be questioned at any stage of the proceedings, proceedings. Even if one fails to raise the issue of the lack of subject matter jurisdiction at trial, he can still raise the issue upon appeal. It is elementary that the jurisdiction of the court over the subject matter of the action is the most critical aspects of the court's authority to act. Without it, the court lacks any power to proceed. Therefore, a defense based upon this lack cannot be waived and may be asserted at any time. Accordingly, the appellants may raise the issue of jurisdiction over the matter for the first time on appeal, although they initially failed 
to raise the issue before the trial court. A reviewing court is required to consider the issue of subject matter jurisdiction even where it was not raised below in order to avoid an unwarranted exercise of judicial authority. There is nothing that one can do or fail to do that would cause the issue of subject matter jurisdiction to be lost. I want to repeat that one. There is nothing that one can do or fail to do that would cause the issue of subject matter jurisdiction to be lost or unavailable to you. Even if a person pleads guilty, he can raise the issue later on if the subject matter jurisdiction never existed. Subject matter jurisdiction cannot be conferred by a guilty plea if it does not otherwise exist. The guilty plea must confess some punishable offense to form the basis of a sentence. The effect of a plea of guilty is a record admission of whatever is well alleged in the indictment. If the latter is insufficient, if the indictment is insufficient, the plea confesses nothing. In this case, a man was charged with a felony theft charge to which he entered into a plea bargain and pleaded guilty. But the facts alleged in the indictment did not constitute the offense charged. There thus was no subject matter jurisdiction and the conviction was and it's referencing the footnote 12. There are many cases where a person was convicted and put in prison. Then upon a discovery of lack of subject matter jurisdiction, submitted a habeas corpus based upon the jurisdictional defect and was released. Subject matter jurisdiction involves more than having the right offense for the right court. Even if the court has jurisdiction over the type, class, or grade of crime committed, it will still lack subject matter jurisdiction if the law which the crime is based upon is invalid, void, unconstitutional, or non-existent. Jurisdiction over the subject matter of action is essential to power to act and is conferred only by constitution or by valid statute. The court must be authorized to hear a crime and have a valid law that creates the crime. Thus, the crux of subject matter jurisdiction is always the crime or offense if, period. If a law is invalid, there is no crime. If there is no crime, there is no subject matter jurisdiction. That is the succinct statement of the logic. If the criminal statute is unconstitutional, the court lacks subject matter jurisdiction and cannot proceed to try the case. In a case where a man was convicted of violating certain sections of some laws, he later claimed the constitutional 
which deprived the county court of jurisdiction to try him for those offenses. The Supreme Court of Oregon held in this case, if these sections are unconstitutional, the law is void, and an offense created by them is not a crime, and a conviction under them cannot be a legal cause of imprisonment, for no court can acquire jurisdiction to try a person for acts which are made criminal only by an unconstitutional law. In Wisconsin, a case involving a charge for violating a law which had actually been repealed, there was a motion hearing on the issue of whether the court had subject matter jurisdiction, and the Supreme Court held where the offense charge does not exist, the trial court lacks jurisdiction. In Minnesota, a man was charged with the offense of being an habitual offender. But the statute which did not make this a crime, it only increased the punishment for a crime. The state Supreme Court said the man could not be convicted of a crime because the statute used did not state an offense, which meant the court was without subject matter jurisdiction. An invalid, unconstitutional, or non-existent statute also affects the validity of the charging document. Now, we're getting deeper into the argument here. We're looking at the indictment or why the papers that were produced to bring someone into court. I'm going to start anew. An invalid, unconstitutional, or non-existent statute also affects the validity of the charging document. Document. That is, plaint, indictment, or information. If these documents are void or fatally defective, there is no subject matter jurisdiction since they are the basis of the court's jurisdiction. When a criminal defendant is indicted under a not yet effective statute, the charging document is void. The indictment or complaint can be invalid if it is not constructed in the particular mode or form prescribed by constitution or statute. This is 42C Corpus Juris Secundum, Indictments and Information, Section 1, page 833. But it also can be defective and void when it charges a violation of a law, and that law is void, unconstitutional or non-existent. If the charging document is void, the subject matter jurisdiction of the court does not exist. The want of sufficient affidavit complaint or information goes to the jurisdiction of the court and renders all proceedings prior to the filing of a proper instrument void ab initio. Ab initio means from the beginning, the very beginning. Jurisdiction, then, is brought to a court by way of a complaint, information, or indictment. If these instruments fail to charge a crime, there can be no subject matter jurisdiction. The allegations in the indictment or information determines the jurisdiction of the court. Where an information charges no crime, the court lacks jurisdiction to try the accused. And a motion to quash the information or charge 
is always timely. Without a formal or sufficient indictment of it or information, a court does not acquire subject matter jurisdiction and thus an accused may not be punished for a crime. One way in which a complaint or indictment fails to charge a crime is by its failure to have the charge based upon a valid or existing law. Complaints or indictments which cite invalid laws or incomplete laws or non-existent laws are regarded as being invalid on their face. Thus, they are said to be fatally defective or fatally bad. Usually when such matters occur, the accused would have the complaint or indictment set aside by a motion to quash, quash or a demurrer. But with today's system, if they are not based on the jurisdictional, jurisdictional question, such a motion can be easily denied. The crux of this whole issue of jurisdiction revolves around law. That is, the law claimed to be violated. If one is subject to a law, they are then under the jurisdiction of some authority. If a king passes a law, then those who are subject to the law are under his jurisdiction, and they can be judged for the violation of the law by the king or one of his ministers. When a person is outside the king's jurisdiction, there is no law he is subject to. But the reverse of this is also true, that being, if there is no law of the king, then there is no jurisdiction or authority to judge the person, even if he is the king's subject. If a crime is alleged, but there is no law to form the basis of that crime, there is no jurisdiction to try and sentence one, even though they are subject to the legislative body and the court. There has to be a law, a valid law, for subject matter jurisdiction to exist. The current corrupt legal system has, in effect, sown its own seeds of destruction by arbitrarily forming codes and revised statutes. All complaints and indictments today cite laws from these codes or revised statute books which contain no enacting clauses. Laws which enact and enact laws are not laws of the legislative body to which we are constitutionally subject. Thus, if a complaint or information charges one with a violation of a law which has no enacting clause, then no valid laws is cited. If it cites no valid law, then the complaint charges no crime, and the court has no subject matter jurisdiction to try the accused. No complaint or indictment can allege that a criminal act has been committed when there is no law which makes the act a crime. When common law crimes were prosecuted in state courts, there were many cases that arose where the accused claimed the act was not a crime at common law. Thus, when issued a complaint or indictment, the accused would, before trial, demurrer to the complaint file motion to quash the complaint 
based on the fact that the complaint failed to cite anything, anything that was a crime. It might be, it therefore might be held that the act was not a crime at common law, and since there was no law, the court had no jurisdiction over the subject matter. The legal system today does not recognize common law crimes, and thus the only thing that is a crime is made so by statute. If there is no statute or law for the crime alleged, there can be no crime. And if there is no crime, there is no subject matter jurisdiction. If a law does not exist or is not constitutional, the court is void and it cannot give subject matter jurisdiction to the court. So that concludes the lecture for today. We'll pick up tomorrow on error versus usurpation. That was quite a mouthful. How Chap are we doing? Chaplain Raymond, back on page 41, or actually it was a sentence that goes from 41 to 42, it says, uh, any lack of jurisdiction over the person is waived by his appearance through counsel. Um, does that mean hiring a, a, an attorney of the court? Yes. Okay. You have you've given a power of attorney. You've given him to sit in your place. Mm -hmm. He is appearing for for you there. Okay. Especially in the system today, as a member of the bar, you, you he essentially you've essentially signed a power of attorney. And remember, the, the way the rules work now, you must have paid him money. It must be a contract. You must be in that commercial court. Do we have any what questions? About when an attorney, what about when an attorney is assigned to you by the court? Did you consent? Well, no, I've never had one, but I was just, you know, when they say that the court will appoint you one. If you consent, they're offering. It's an And it's a difficult thing to say, no, I don't want one. Or say, I do not consent. Now, you're getting down to details as if you're in the jurisdiction. True. Wow. <laughs> this was a lot, but it, great. It's a lot to chew on. Yeah, yeah. It's it uh I must I must say it takes a while to Master this because they have been they've had fifty or sixty years to perfect it, and uh the activities and the way they've done and 
many, many other details, beehives, rabbit trails, are just keep you from seeing the the thing. But the important thing to note about subject matter jurisdiction is you can't consent to give it to them if they don't have it. So you can always ask that it be provided, that they prove it or whatever. So uh, let's stop the recording.